following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 21 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is, it, that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I'm going to pray, and we have got some text to jump into this morning. Father, Again, we come before you in prayer, knowing that Jesus is interceding for us, that he is um, at your right hand, speaking to you on our behalf, and we give you thanks and praise for such a great high priest and mediator. Um, Father, we come to your word this morning to feast, Um, whether we are coming for our daily bread or we are coming spiritually malnourished, we need sustenance, and your word is sustenance for our souls and so would you, would you whet our appetite for you in your word? Would you give us a hunger that only the word of God can, can fulfill? And would you change our hearts through this as we kind of dig into your word this morning? I ask that you would help me to communicate the gospel clearly this morning, to, to unpack your word um, faithfully, but also to be faithful to the people and connect with them in a way that Jesus is made real So would you help me? Would you speak through my tongue, think through my mind? Um, 
and use me this morning for your good work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen, amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we are currently um, in the middle of a sermon series which is in the middle of a sermon series. We've been going through the book of Exodus for the last 27 or eight weeks, and we've been pretty much going one chapter at a time each week, kind of working our way that way. But when we came to the 20th chapter, which, which happens to be the Ten Commandments, we've slowed it down, so we're at about, about a, out of a pace about one verse a week. So um, we've, we've taken a scenic route through the Ten Commandments, and, and so this has kind of opened up this series within a series. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Exodus, it's the second book of the Bible, um, and Exodus is an epic story, and it's kind of an epic story of two folds here. The first part of the story is an epic story of how God has delivered his people from slavery. Um, in the beginning of Exodus, we're told that Israel, these are God's people, have been captive and oppressed by, Israel, uh, by Egyptians for 400 years. Um, they're working hard, hard hours, doing tons and tons of work, and, and they're crying out to God for help. And, and, and Scripture tells us that God hears their cries, he sees their affliction, and he raises up this man named Moses to do something about it. Now, Moses eventually goes back to Pharaoh, and he says... God's people let them go, right? And there's just a lot of back and forth that goes on here between Pharaoh and Moses, and there's plagues that happen. It's, it's an incredible display of power until the final plague happens, which is the Passover, um, where uh, all of the Egyptian firstborn sons die as the angel of death passes through Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh had enough, and he folds to God, and he says, okay, get out of here. Get out of my sight. And so in the middle of the night, Israel packs up. They head out of town, and they get going, they get going, and they finally come to this, this T where they hit the Red Sea. And as they get to the Red Sea, they're wondering, okay, what's going to happen next? They look behind them, and Pharaoh has changed his mind. He, he has sent an army after them to either recapture them and, and afflict them with even more cruel slavery, or he's just going to kill them. And so they're at this real do or die moment. What's going to happen with God's people? And God opens up the Red Sea and parts it so that his people can walk through unscathed. And then the crazy thing that happens is at the same time, while God's people walk through and pass safely into this free open land, uh, the Egyptians pursue after them and God closes in the waters and wipes them out completely. So in that moment, God single-handedly defeats the Egyptians and frees his people. Now, that's the first part of the Exodus story. The second part of the Exodus story is really about how God is teaching his people how to live free. See, that's what uh, from chapters 20 all the way to the end of Exodus is really about. God has given them freedom, and now he's teaching them how to live free. He's teaching them how to get the most out of their newfound freedom and how to flourish in light of that. And so this brings us to the Ten Commandments, where he lays out this list of things for them to do. Now, when most people think of the Ten Commandments, they, they see a, a set of rules, right? A set of do's and don'ts. And typically, we are hesitant or resistant to any sort of list of do's and don'ts. We see this as sort of an ob obstruction of freedom. We see this as a hindrance to what we really want in life. And, and, and I, I can relate to that. I, when I was um, in college, back in my... Um, well, I used to wear skinny jeans and band t-shirts with wolves, and I had long, flowing hair. I'm not joking. I could get away with it because I was in a band, okay? I could get away with it. 
But my number one mode of transportation around campus was a longboard. And it's just a giant skateboard. And, and I loved my longboard. It got me from place A to place B. Very fun. It was great entertainment. But the only problem was that campus had a, a rule uh, that prohibited longboarding, specifically longboarding in the parking garage. And parking garage longboarding is some of the best longboarding. I'll tell you why. Because you can get to the top of the hill and ride down, and at the bottom, there's an elevator that takes you right back up, okay? So all night long, you could just ride this parking garage. It's great fun. But there were a couple times where the rules or the enforcers of the rules would come in and they would try to stifle my fun. Now, I tell that story because it's kind of funny, but, but there there's, is this idea that the rules are there to stop us from having fun. And I think if we approach the Ten Commandments the same way that I approach parking garage rules with the skateboard, we miss out on God's heart for telling people what to do and what not to do. See, in fact... We, through these Ten Commandments, God is showing us the way to have the most enjoyable life available to us. In fact, the Ten Commandments, if they were kept perfectly, would show us what heaven is like. Think about that. In heaven, the Ten Commandments are kept perfectly. That means that there's perfect worship of God alone. There's eternal rest. Parents are being honored. There's no relational turmoil. There's no stealing, lying, or cheating. And so when we look at these commandments through that lens, that they are life-giving commandments, not life-stifling commandments, it changes our whole view of them. See, these these commandments are not roadblocks to happiness, but they are inroads to the deepest truest enjoyment that God has for us. But the thing is, this is hard for us as Christians, even, as, as a, even more so as a culture, to understand, especially given the topic of the seventh commandment, which is all about marital purity, which includes emotional, sexual, relational faithfulness between spouses. And so I, I need to give a disclaimer at this point that we're going there today. You may have picked up on it from our liturgy, from our confession, that we are going there today. And, and, and this is, I'll tell you, this is the drawback of preaching exegetically, where you set your preaching calendar like a year in advance, and, and you say, okay, we're gonna go through the book of Exodus, and you know this verse falls where it will. And then you have a baptism Sunday with a lot of visitors, and you're preaching on adultery, right? That's kind of a drawback. You might be thinking, if you're visiting, what kind of church is this, right? I just came for baptism, and here I'm going to get this whole thing about adultery. And, and I'll tell you, we're a church that preaches the Bible. We think, we think that the church's job is to be faithful to the Word of God alone, and so we are going to do that. We're going to let the text lead us where it will, and we're going to be unpacking um, things in, in regards to adultery. And I realize there might be some kids in the room and parents, I'll leave it up to you and how you want to proceed. Um, we do have a nursery if, it, if your kids wanna go hang out in there for a while. Otherwise, there's a gymnasium um, right behind us. They can go do burpees for the next 40 minutes and maybe develop some self-discipline, physical self-discipline that'll translate into other things down the road. Um, but here, here, as your pastor, I want to encourage you to let them stay here um, because here's why. Our culture, everywhere you go, there is a sexual agenda that's being pushed everywhere. You cannot, you cannot escape it. 
And so I think it's good for your kids to hear what the Bible teaches in this safe place where I will be mindful of my words, I'll be mindful of what I say, and to hear from God how to view sex in, in, in light of marriage and so forth. And so that's my, I'll leave it up to you parents if you want to do that. Um, but like I said, our culture is filled with sexual confusion. It's sex-obsessed. It's hypersexualized. You know this is true, that when, when you're watching advertisements, when it's scantily clothed women that are selling hamburgers, right? It doesn't make sense. From our advertisement to our entertainment to our relationships, the envelope is being pushed as to what we can get away with in culture. See, this is because our culture at large doesn't understand God's uh, uh, design for sexuality and how it's meant to fit inside of marriage. See, as our, as our profession or our confession sort of highlighted, our culture and we tend to see sex as a way to express our individualism, a way to gain power, a way to gain affections from others. It's this idea, this mantra that I'm in control. I get to choose who sees and touches what. I get to choose what I do with my body, right? And we have this sort of pushback when, when God tells us to do or not to do something with our body. Who is God to say so? And so we take sex, and, and we'll see it's, sex is really this great, beautiful thing that God has given us as a gift, and we reduce it to something that's so small and useless and void of meaning, See, when sexuality is reduced to something that's impersonal and detached, it's not what it was meant to be. I was listening to a podcast this week. I couldn't believe this. There was a survey done uh, amongst millennials, and, and the results said that millennials now see a first date as being more intimate than having sex. To sit down and to look at someone in the eye and have a conversation with them is now viewed as a more intimate interaction than actually getting into bed with someone. That is how sex has been emptied of its meaning. It's been tarnished. It's been reduced to this primal craving. And really, in doing so, it's been reduced down to a small and shallow view of God's good gift. And so it's with this small view of sexuality, it's no wonder why culture doesn't buy into God's idea of marital purity. This, this monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong relationship, abstaining from all forms of sexual immorality outside of marriage. See, culture looks at that and says God is keeping something from us. He's holding out on us. But here's the thing. That's not the case at all. See, the seventh commandment, by, by God telling us to, to abstain from sexual immorality and adultery, he's doing the opposite. He's protecting and preserving the beauty of sex for us. He's showing us how to enjoy it the most because sex is like fire. See, sex, a fire, in order to be enjoyed in its fullest, must be kept in its proper place, right? On a, on a chilly evening, which we might have like tonight with snowfall. Good place for a fire is right in the fireplace. Cuddle up with a blanket, get a book. You enjoy the fire. That's a good place for a fire to bleed. But here's the deal. When, when, when fire is taken out of the place that it was meant to be, 
right? When the fire moves from the fireplace onto the couch, onto your blanket, onto your curtains, chaos ensues. Bad things happen. Destruction is going to happen. See, sex is the same way. See, when God's design for sex is disregarded and taken out of the fireplace, all sorts of problems ensue. And as a culture, we're plagued with these issues. We're single mothers raising kids with no dads, families torn apart by divorce, the spread of STDs and AIDS. There's the objectification of women through pornography. There's the rape culture on college campuses and every horrific thing that has ever been documented in Law and Order SVU. These are products of the breaking of the seventh commandment. And as much as I point to the culture and say, that's where the problem is, the problem is just as prominent within the church. It's not just an out there problem, it's an in here problem. If you don't believe me, just look at Paul's writings in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians deals with all kinds of bizarre sexual immorality. In fact, if you were to just do a, a survey through the New Testament, of of issues of sexual immorality and people writing to address those issues. There's all kinds of scripture. In fact, as we go through the Bible today, we're gonna jump all over the place seeing just that. And if you think the struggle has disappeared from the church over the last thousands, thousand years, you're sorely mistaken. Because in the last five years of my short ministry, I have seen just how confused and lost Christians are, especially Christians are, when it comes to sex and marriage. See, the studies show that, that a Christian couple that is divorcing is nearly just as likely to be divorcing because of infidelity as a non-Christian couple. I know from experience, there are too many Christian men, or, or should I say boys, who are regularly indulging in pornography. I know that there are, I've done enough premarital counseling to know that there are, are numerous Christian couples engaging in premarital sex. There, there are all kinds of sexual issues plaguing the church. And so in light of all this, and in light of the culture and what's going on in the church, the seventh commandment is incredibly relevant for us today. And so in order to understand the breadth of this commandment, we need a higher, more beautiful view of sex. And the only way to get that is to dive into the mystery of marriage. And so that's what we're going to do for a couple minutes here. Um, I don't have time to do a full workup on, on marriage. Um, we have in the past spent, uh, we've done a whole series on marriage going through the book of Ephesians a few years back. If you want to go back and listen to some of that, there's been tons of books, great books written on marriage that can do far more justice than I can. And so if you want to, to pursue this study, I would encourage you to do that. But I want to lay a foundation to help us biblically understand marriage. And I'll do that by laying out the three C's. If you're taking notes, this is like the only time I'll ever give you three C's. So here they are. The three C's of marriage, composition, covenant, and con- consummation. And, and to kind of build this out, I want to turn to Genesis 2, which is going back to the left in your Bible. Genesis chapter 2. Will be verse 18. And, and what's going on here at this point in Scripture, God has created, He's created everything. He's created um, the heavens, the earth, He's created the birds and the fish and the trees and the land and the skies. And He's created man to look after all of these things. At this point, it's just Adam flying solo, Adam and a bunch of animals. 
And up to this point, God has said he's created and there's a pattern he creates and said, this is good. And then he says, this is very good. And then he gets to the point here in chapter two, verse 18, where God is gonna say something different. He says, this is not good. He's gonna look at Adam and his loneliness with all these animals to say, this is not good for man to be alone. And so what we're gonna see here, well, we'll just read. Um, Genesis chapter two, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now let's jump down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up with the, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he had made into a woman and brought her to the man. And he said, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, the first C here is the composition of marriage. Now, before we get to the composition of marriage, we need to see who is the composer of marriage. This is God who is making marriage. He's creating marriage. He's, he's the one that says it's not good for a man to be alone, so I'll make an, another one who's fit for him, who's more compatible for him. And so we see that this, this idea of marriage is not a governmental, social construction. This is something that God has made. Therefore, God is the one who gets to define it. And so God does that in showing the composition. He takes one man and one woman and he puts them together and marries them. And I know this is controversial, especially in our culture, but this is God's design for marriage. And then we'll take you to the next C, which is covenant. So we see this when God brings the woman to the man. He, he leads her down the aisle. This is a wedding ceremony. There's a covenant about to take place. Malachi 2 talks about this. The Lord was the witness between you and your wife, your wife by covenant. There is a covenantal bond going on here. Now, if you've been tracking with us over the last couple of weeks through Missional Community, we've been going through a Mingling of Souls video series, and, and they've been contrasting this idea of contract versus covenant. Now, we live in a contract society, right? This, you do this, and I'll do this, all right? And, and we, as long as we got this going on, we'll be cool. But as soon as you don't do what you say you're gonna do, I'm out right? It's this legal thing. If you don't fulfill your legal obligation, I'm bouncing. Where a covenant is different. See, a covenant says, uh, I am going to do this, and I'm counting on you to do that, but even if you don't do this, I'm still going to do this. I'm not going to bounce on you. I'm going to be here for the long haul. See, marriage is a radical commitment. It's a covenant commitment to another person that says, I'm here no matter what. I'm here for the long haul. I'm here if you're going to fail, no matter what. See, and this covenant, there's no expiration date on it. Actually, there is an expiration date on this covenant. It's when you take your last breath. That's when it expires. It's a lifelong commitment to another person. And this lifelong exclusive, and not, not only that, you're committing to be with this person forever. There's no other ones outside of that. It's, it's exclusive commitment. And now, with this lifelong exclusive commitment to your spouse, it, because it's such a profound commitment, it makes sense that there would be consummation. And we see this in Genesis um, 2, verses 24 and 25. He's... he's 
he's um, and even 23 he says that last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh she'll make a woman because she was taken out of man therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed you see when you've completely given yourself to someone else when you've been vulnerable exposed when you've seen the crazy when you've built trust when you've been truly known yet deeply loved when you've made this radical commitment physical intimacy is the next logical step tim keller says that sex is doing with your bodies what you have already done with the rest of your life see until you have given all of your life to someone you're not ready to give them your body. And so this is what we see with Adam and Eve. They give, give each other, give over to one another where they're naked and ashamed. They're completely known. Imperfection is all. What, there is not a more beautiful illustration of covenant relationship than for a man and a woman to be naked and unashamed, to know the imperfections, to know the hurts, to know the scars, to know the wounds, to know everything and still be accepted. See, this is profound. This is incredible. This is something, this sort of freedom, relational freedom that God was meant, or that God desired to kind of cultivate through a marriage relationship. In fact, this is meant to be the most intimate relationship. So in the context of marriage, we see sex as this beautiful thing this giving over to one another is a liberating thing for married people, married couples to enjoy. But it's so much more than that. As Paul explains uh, in Ephesians chapter five, we're going to bounce Ephesians chapter five, verses thirty-one and thirty-two. He explains that it's just it's more, marriage and sex is just more than what's right here. There's something heavenly about it. He says this. He says, "Husband, uh, let's see, where was I at? Thirty-one. Is that right? 531. Therefore, he's quoting the same passage here from Genesis that we were just in. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is it. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, marriage is an illustration that God made to point to Christ and the church. He, did, he wasn't trying, like, he wasn't like grasping for straws here. Well, what, can I, what sort of illustration can I create or, or can I point to to say this is what the, the relationship of Christ and the church looks like? He, did, he created marriage to point to Jesus and the church and the commitment that Christ has to his people, this covenantal love that he doesn't go anywhere even though we tend to drift away. You see, when we see marriage, when we have this bigger view of marriage, it makes sense why God would put a commandment, and the seventh commandment, to protect marriage, right? The seventh commandment being this in Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. See, this commandment is made to protect the sacred bond of marriage and to keep, safe, keep sex where it belongs, to keep sex in the fireplace. And so we need to look at this commandment. What does he mean when he says, do not commit adultery? Well, what is adultery? Philip Ryken, he's a commentator on this passage. He says, uh, adultery is any form of marital infidelity, unfaithfulness to the marriage covenant. And so at face value, this has to do with a, a, a sexual, any sort of sexual relationship that happens outside of the context of marriage. Now, 
Philip Ryken also goes on to comment, to comment on this. He says that, that adultery is the greatest sexual sin because it violates trust be, between a husband and a wife. It breaks the marriage covenant, a promise made before God. You see, he's saying here that there's destruction, that in, in breaking this commandment, there's destruction that happens. Trust is violated, intimacy is ruined, the covenant is broken. There's this feelings of being exposed and ashamed. But the thing is that this extends beyond those who are involved in such an interaction. See, it spreads into the family where even children are affected. There's, I heard it said one time that if, if you commit adultery, Jesus will forgive you. Your spouse might forgive you, but your kids probably won't forgive you because the hurt is so deep and so profound because adultery causes so much hurt and destruction, and because it's an attack on God's design for marriage and sex, the consequences are also severe. We see this laid out in the Old Testament in Leviticus 20.10. It says that both parties who are caught in adultery should be put to death. Now, Doug Wilson, who's a pastor, um, comments on this. He says, certainly the adulterer is worthy of death. A man who will betray his wife will betray anyone and anything. Adultery is treason against the family, and God hates it. See, not only does adultery cause a lot of damage and pain in the family with relationships, but is soul-destroying. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral or adulterers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, there are eternal ramifications for our sexual impurity. Hebrews 13, 4 says, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And Jesus, like you think, you think that maybe Jesus will lighten up a little bit, but Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 5. Actually, that's where we're going to go here if you want to jump to Matthew 5. Matthew is going to say the same thing, and, and it's actually even more frightening because not only does Jesus say the same thing, but he sort of ups the ante about what it means to commit adultery. Here, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, uh, Matthew five twenty seven. He says, you have heard, it, heard that it was said, now he's going to quote this commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus expands the definition of adultery here. He blows it up. He makes it to include lustful intent. So if you have, even if you haven't crossed the physical line, if you have crossed a line in your heart, you have committed adultery. Now, if we're gonna, if we're gonna look at this, we need to understand what Jesus is talking about lust. We need to understand what lust is exactly. And I'm gonna use R.C. Sproul to kind of help us build this framework of what lust is and what lust isn't. He says this, this is kind of a long quote, so hang with me. Lust is not sexual desire in and of itself, for sexual desire is part of God's good creation and, con and, and the consummation of it is entirely lawful within marriage. Moreover, lust is not the mere recognition of physical attractiveness. 
The Lord made us to recognize beauty, and Scripture itself speaks without breaking God's law of the beauty and handsomeness of some of the people it describes. Instead, lust may be defined as the desire to engage in or enjoy illicit sexual activity. And he goes on, given this definition, a whole host of things qualifies as lust, including the viewing of pornography, adulterous fantasies, homosexual behavior, incest, sexual abuse, rape, bestiality, and other perversions. In prohibiting lust, Jesus prohibits all of these things. See, this, this lust, lust is crossing the line of sexual purity in your heart to dwell on it, to fantasize, to, to engage in it. Lust is to look at a person who isn't your spouse and to imagine or to fantasize about the sexual possibilities. Now, singles, I hope you're not feeling left out at this point. I'm gonna, I want to ring you in on this because this applies to singled and married people alike. Both categories of people are capable of committing adultery in your heart. Now, it's really obvious for those who are married, right? You know who your spouse is and you know if you're sinning against them. But for for singles, how can you commit adultery if you have no spouse? Well, let me tell you, your lustful intent is adultery on your future spouse. Pornography is cheating on your future spouse. Sex outside of marriage is unfaithfulness to your future spouse. Your fantasy novels and, and, and movies that are filled with filth is cheating on your future spouse. See, your, your job now in your singleness is to keep yourself for that spouse that God will one day provide for you if he wills. See, you are supposed to guard your purity in your singleness. It's not because God is stingy, because Christians are prudes. I think that if you do any research on the Puritans, you'll see that the people who are the most devoted to God enjoy the sex the most. Right, there, there's a point where the Puritans, it, it got banned from public schools because they were so enthralled with the beauty of sex that God had made for marriage. See, it's not because Christians are prude or God's stingy. It's because your greatest sexual enjoyment will only happen within the context of marriage. And so the way that you prepare yourself now for faithful, joyful, lasting marriage is to fight for purity in your singleness now, to love your future spouse right now and keep yourself for them. See, this marital, marital purity is a serious issue for married and, married and singles alike because Jesus is serious about it. He keeps going on on the Sermon on the Mount, and he, he tells us to fight against this. He, he's, this is actually quite severe when he goes to verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. See, Jesus is serious about this. Now, he's not literally telling us to amputate. This is, this is a hyperbole but he's serious about fighting your sexual sin because your sexual purity is more important than having your right hand or your eye. Your sexual purity is something to be treasured, to be protected. See, Jesus has no problem saying this at all. He has no problem saying protect this at all costs. 
because this is what John Piper says it like this, because lust disables and weakens our capacity for higher spiritual joys with God. See, Jesus is saying, even in your singleness, you don't need sex to experience the fullness of what God has for you. So it's with this heavenward focus all throughout the New Testament that Christians are continually called to the same degree of marital purity so they can better enjoy the fullness of God. This is what Paul's aim is in 1 Corinthians 6.18 when he tells them to flee from sexual immorality, run away from it, and run toward God. In Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 5, he says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And what does your sanctification look like? that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor and not in the passion of lust. This is stuff that God wants for us because God, God wants us to be sexually pure because he wants us to be his. Now I need to get into some practical stuff here, right? This is one of those sermons where you, you have to have some application. Luther, Martin Luther said, or somebody, it's maybe a proverb or something like that, I, but he's accredited with this. He says that you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from making a, ne- a nest in your hair. See, the same is true of temptation. Temptation is everywhere, right? In our culture, we've already acknowledged that. Temptation is everywhere, but you can stop it from, turning it, from it turning into lust and into adultery. And so to do that, to help us get that bird out of our hair, Here's some practical things. For everyone, first of all, make yourself accountable with real human beings. People who can take their finger and put it in your chest and say, what have you been up to? Make yourself accountable to other human beings. Now, don't, I think what happens most often with people who who really are tempted sexually, they tend to be isolated they cut themselves off from true community. They settle for social media relationships and not the real sort of, I'm here and I love you, brother. I'm gonna walk with you sort of relationship. So you need real face-to-face relationships. Another thing, don't be idle. There, there's something to be said about using our bodies for good. And if, if we are just sitting and consuming and being lazy, there's a lot of room for temptation to sneak in and distract us. So don't be idle. Fill your time with good things. You were saved for good works. Go do them. Read a book. Pick up your Bible. Call a friend. Get coffee. Do something Plant a garden, I don't know, do something. Parents, parents, the time more than ever, we need to monitor, I know this might seem like big brother stuff, but we need to monitor our, our kids' social media, app, internet intake. We have to. If we, if we love our children enough, we care about their future spouse and we're praying for their future spouse that they would be fit for each other. We have to monitor and be diligent in this. Pay attention to what they're watching on TV. Be smart about the apps and and the intake. Just be mindful of it. Married couples, foster intimacy that moves into the bedroom. 
okay? Intimacy doesn't start in the bedroom. Intimacy moves into the bedroom. We need to foster our marriages. We need to care for one another, to, to, to know and to be intimate with one another. That moves us into the bedroom. And in enjoying one another, the good gifts that God has given us, we can enjoy good, frequent sex as married couples. Somebody give me an amen there. Somebody's got to say amen. Thank you. Proverbs 5.18. You guys are so quiet. I feel like I'm scolding you, I promise. That's one of the best scoldings ever, though. Proverbs 5.18. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let's do it. Married couples, this is how we fight against lust and adultery, okay? Now, those are some practical things. If I were to just end this sermon here, this would be moralistic. This would be um, a try harder, do better sort of sermon. There would be a lot of unanswered questions. Because essentially what, what's happened at this point, we've, we've looked at the law. We've looked at what God requires. And, and, it, and I'm certain every single person in this room, if not every single person in this city, I know every single person in this city, has broken this commandment because this law exposes our wrongdoings. And that's really all it's good for. The law shows us what we ought to do and shows us our failings. It doesn't give us power to move into it, to do better at it. Now, I realize that some of you might feel like you've been found out, right? That this is something that you struggle with. You haven't been true to your marriage covenant. Maybe lust, pornography dominates and controls your life. Maybe, maybe you're even in the middle of an extramarital affair right now, right? And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. And, and if this is you, I hope by God's grace that you do feel convicted. I hope that the law is held up and you see, I am failing at this. I hope that you feel the pinch of how damaging your infidelity is to you and your spouse and and maybe your future spouse. I hope that you're troubled to the point that you can no longer be comfortable living in sin to the point where you desire to come out of the darkness and move into the light. That's what I hope for you in hearing the law presented. But what I hope for you, above all, is that you would turn to Jesus and you would repent of your sin and receive his forgiveness. I pray that you would look to the cross and that you would see a man who perfectly kept the seventh commandment. This is just insane to think about, that Jesus perfectly kept the seventh commandment, never sinning sexually, no adultery, no lust, completely and entirely pure. And it was this Jesus that was completely faithful to his unfaithful bride, the church, right? The story of scripture, if you, if you just trace the story of God's people, time and time again, God chases after them as they're walking away. Hosea is a perfect example of this. But Jesus was pure. He stayed true to her. He did not deviate from her. In fact, he gave himself up for her. How scandalous. 
he would give his life over for the runaway bride. If you jump back to Ephesians 5.25, you don't have to, I'll read it for you here. Ephesians 5.25 says, husbands, love your wives. And he says this, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I have a friend from college and we were talking one time, and she was about to get married, and she said, you know what, I, I don't know if I can ever wear white on my wedding day. I'll have to wear an off-white. I've been too sexually impure. I've lived a life deviating, uh, you know, I, the lust, the adultery. I've, I've done it all. There's no way that I can wear white. There's no way I can be pure. And friends, if you feel this way, if your sexual past has you feeling ashamed, if you feel dirty, unworthy, there is good news for you. There's good news for you that the gospel is for adulterers. You see, you don't get the gospel unless you first understand that you are an adulterer. See, the gospel is good news for adulterers because not only is there forgiveness, but there's cleansing. That Jesus gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, that he might rebeautify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Jesus is making the church beautiful for himself. so beautiful that he might present the church to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Friends, this is what's available for us to be made new, to be forgiven, to be washed clean. I've got to go to 1 Corinthians as I'm closing here. See, the gospel is for adulterers. Paul knew this. When he's talking to the Corinthians, I told you these guys are all messed up sexually here. He's talking to him and says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or the adulterer, the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And check this out. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is good news. That the dirty are made clean, that we are made fit for a perfect groom. See, this is the reality that we are not fit to be Christ's people, but it's by his work on the cross, through his, his faithfulness, that we are made fit to belong to him. See, this is the gospel. And now, not only does the gospel purify us of our sins and wash us new, but the gospel gives us power to step into the law. The gospel, when we believe the gospel, we are filled with the spirit of God, which compels us to the obedience of faith, to trust that really 
Really, really, my deepest joy is in Christ, not in some sort of sexual fantasy. And I can be rooted in that. And that can keep me on the clear and narrow. See, Edmund Clowney says, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are given what the law itself could never provide, the power of his presence and the spirit to change our hearts. See, what we need is is hearts to be changed from unfaithful to faithful, and it's God's constant one-way love that changes our hearts. And that's what I pray for us today, that God's love would change our hearts in a radical way, that we would be purified and that we would love purity and we would love one another well enough to encourage one another into this. For our good and the glory of Christ, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good word. We thank you for how you have worked on our behalf to purify us, to make us new, to make us clean, to give us new life, to to make us fit for heaven. Father, we desire to be faithful and true to you. We desire our, our faithfulness and trueness to you to extend to our spouse and our future spouse, and we need help with all this temptation that's out there, everything that's trying to to steer us away, we need your help. So would you give us your spirit to fight, to fight for purity, to fight for what's beautiful and good and true. We ask for this in Jesus' name, amen.